It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. It all started with a bowl of soup at the loop. Chicago was on the cusp of the summer of 1918, when Joseph E. Mimoser went out to dine at a restaurant in The Loop, the downtown business district. 1918 would prove to be a big year for the metropolis. The great influenza pandemic would arrive in the city in a few months, killing thousands. World War I would rage on throughout the autumn, before an armistice with Germany was signed on November 11th. And the Chicago Cubs would go on to lose the World Series to the Boston Red Sox, in a stretch of games completely void of home runs. Mimoser didn't know this when he sat down at his table, but he wouldn't live to see any of those momentous events. He was 43 years old. He was a longtime resident of the Windy City. He had a wife and three children. He was also a police operator with a career stretching back 22 years. Sadly, the disaster that would follow wasn't Mimoser's first bout of bad luck in the city of Big Shoulders. On February 25, 1901, the Chicago Inter-Ocean reported that he'd been roughly used by highwaymen while leaving work at the police station around midnight. Five robbers had been bold enough to brutally beat a member of the city's force and steal his revolver. They pummeled him until he was unconscious, but the cops managed to catch two of the attackers immediately. And Mimoser evidently recovered and continued to work for the department. But things would come to a more permanent turning point that day in June of 1918. Mimoser ordered his food. He drank the soup. We don't know if he tipped well or at all. We don't know much about what happened beyond the basic details. We do know that Mimoser got sick. Very sick. The police operator fell ill in a fashion that the newspapers of the time described as sudden. Then, on June 19, 1918, Mimoser died. They held his funeral the next day at St. Michael's Church. 
that might have been the end of it. It's a sad fact that back then, there were often no easy answers when a person dropped dead. Medicine just wasn't what it is now. But that wasn't the end of it. Soon afterwards, Mimoser's name was being brought up in connection with a stunning investigation, one that would prompt restaurant patrons across the country to cast a new, suspicious eye toward their servers. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the Murder Sheet, and this is The Waiter Wars. Can you trust your server? It's a pretty scary question when you think about it for a moment. Going out to eat is an act of implicit trust. We trust that the food at whatever restaurant we're patronizing is safe. We trust that the cook preparing our meal didn't saute the onions in fat and cyanide. We trust that the mixologist sliding a Tom Collins over the bar didn't splash in a shot of Rufinol to balance out the lemon juice and gin. We trust that the waitstaff at our favorite dive didn't sprinkle a pinch of hallucinogens into our chili. So what happens when that trust is ruptured? Well, these days, health measures have been enacted to protect the public in the United States. The Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, investigates food safety incidents. The Food Safety and Inspection Service, or FSIS, reviews meat and egg standards for the Department of Agriculture. And of course, in instances where purposeful poisoning is suspected, local law enforcement can be called upon to bring perpetrators to justice. Our ability to identify harmful substances, bacteria, and viral agents in food has come a long way over the past century. But it was a different story in 1918. A glance at the internet would indicate that this trust came into question in the early part of the 20th century. The concept of a Mickey fan or Mickey, the common name for a drug drink, dates back to that time. And the term actually hails from Chicago itself. On December 17, 1903, the Chicago Inter-Ocean reported that Mickey Finn, 
the proprietor of the Lone Star Saloon and Palm Garden Restaurant in Chicago, lost his commercial license over accusations about his use of knockout drops. Or, as the inter-ocean colorfully put it, Mickey Finn's Lone Star Saloon was lonely last night, and his Palm Garden was not palmy. Finn's knockout drops are charged with knocking him out of business. Finn defended himself from the allegations, saying that an untrustworthy character named Goldtooth Mary Thornton had made false allegations about the knockout drops to the police after he refused to sell her the place. For her part, Thornton had apparently told cops on the city's graft committee that Finn was in the habit of drugging anyone who made the mistake of flashing a $2 bill or more in his establishment. Apparently, the powers that be cited was Goldtooth Mary. The mayor yanked the license of the saloon and garden, which were located at 527 and 529 State Street. It's a salacious story. To put it bluntly, newspaper men back then sometimes cranked out copy that was heavy on scandal and light on actual facts. So it's important to remember that as we review such media reports. But it is fair to say that Mickey Finn's name would become synonymous with beverages spiked with drugs that would make the drinker sick or unconscious. But more incidents involving servers and Mickey Finn drugs would pop up in the years following the saloon owner's downfall. Look carefully and you'll see an oft-repeated factoid that a hundred Chicago waiters were arrested for poisoning diners. That's a heck of a historical mess. The way it's been framed, you'd assume that an army of disgruntled servers had vowed to kill stingy tippers en masse. Well, that's not quite true. Although it is fair to say that 1918 Chicago was a battleground for what could be described as ongoing waiter wars. We'll be delving into the waiter wars and the poisoning allegations that sprang from this conflict. We tried to dive into the newspaper and court archives to shed light on what happened, but we confess that we don't know what to make of certain elements of this whole thing. No matter what, it's a story about a vicious labor dispute that spilled out into the legal realm. More specifically, it's either a story about corrupt labor officials and workers willing to sicken or even kill diners to stick it to penny-pinching hotels and restaurants, or corrupt hotels and restaurants willing to use the legal system to target and harass crusading labor officials and workers. It's a puzzle, in other words. I don't know if we'll figure out any concrete answers by the end of this episode, but we'll definitely learn a good lesson along the way. History is usually more complicated than it initially appears. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, 
spot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's R-O dot C-O slash msheet. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So let's jump back to the aftermath of the Moser's death. On June 22, 1918, just a few days after the police operator's passing, detectives from the Illinois State Attorney's Office descended on 155 West Madison Street. That address housed the Chicago Waiters Union. Authorities took around 100 waiters into custody. The reason? A case of suspected mass poisoning. Now, the vast majority of those 100 or so servers initially detained were let go, with no charges filed. So it's overstating it for modern-day reports on the incident to insinuate that all of those arrested in the raid were actually suspected of poisoning patrons. But the scheme that detectives were investigating did have far-reaching implications for the restaurant and hotel industries in Chicago. The idea was that a certain coterie had conspired to obtain knockout powder and sell it over the bar located at the union headquarters. If you became known as a cheapskate in Chicago-area restaurants and hotels, you'd be risking getting Mickey finned. Now, it's important to remember that tipping was a relatively new trend. In the 19th century, giving gratuities was seen by many Americans is being incompatible with an egalitarian society. It was viewed as a holdover of the antiquated aristocratic systems of Europe, and some historians have even linked it to slavery and serfdom. But some rich Americans wanted to seem cosmopolitan, so it increasingly became popular over here. 
The impact of prohibition on restaurants helped usher in a gratuity-based salary system for waiters, and that was cemented in the New Deal, after the Fair Labor Standards Act allowed for a loophole in the federal minimum wage. Suffice to say that tipping has always been controversial, as it continues to be today. While there are obviously servers who are happy raking in tips, it is a system that allows for exploitation, forcing workers to rely on the generosity of customers to earn a livable wage. But anyways, let's get back to the whole poison thing. The state attorney's office seemed happy to release details of their investigation to the press. They publicly linked the death of Joseph Mimoser to the case. They noted that his physician was going to be questioned and that Mimoser's body might even need to be exhumed. They were also quick to let the public know that they had convened a grand jury. The Chicago Tribune reported that Assistant State Attorney Nicholas Michaels had been looking into the Meyer Brothers Drug Company, an outfit based in St. Louis. The company's representatives cooperated with the investigation, saying that they had received letters ordering Mickey Finn powder, which included antimony potassium tartrate, or tartar emetic. The powder could induce vomiting and dizziness, and could be fatal depending on the dose. The letter writer was a certain man named W. Stuart Wood of 333 East 55th Street in Chicago. He was listed in the newspapers as a dispenser of powders. Wood's order had also included alarming items like chemicals used to make stench bombs, a hallmark of what the Tribune referred to as the labor wars. Wood apparently confessed to using the drug at the Kenwood Hotel, the Grand Pacific Hotel, and the Union League Club. Cook County State's Attorney McClay Hoyne told the newspaper that if, quote, any regular patron of a hotel or cafe who persistently forgot to tip the waiters, or any customer who was exacting in his demands for service, irascible, or inclined to reprove the waiters for oversights, quickly became noted among the waiters, and ultimately was administered a Mickey Finn. Wood claimed to sell the drugs to the waiters' union for 20 cents a package. The union then sold the drugs to its members for 25 cents a package, allowing them to net a little profit. According to the Chicago Tribune, the state's attorney's office paraded 49 witnesses before the grand jury, including eight men and five women who testified that they had been poisoned. The newspaper reported that the women who claimed to have been drugged were named Mary Chadwick, Ellen Dobson, Olive Amdent, Ellen Fee, and Marie Fee, and that they had all been given spiked coffee. Assistant Attorney Michaels also brought in evidence that the union had used dynamite and stench bombs to intimidate employers who engaged in union-busting tactics. Establishments where the drug had allegedly been deployed include the Jackson Park Tavern, the Kenwood Hotel, Idlewiss, the Terrace Garden, the LaSalle, the Morrison, the Sherman Hotel, the Union League, and the University Clubs. Servers and labor officials in Chicago were very suspicious of the motivations behind the investigation. On June 25, 1918, the Chicago Tribune ran an article where local labor leaders voiced some of those concerns. 
In response to the raid, the local waiters' union president, Benjamin Parker, put together a joint conference. During that meeting, Parker and his colleagues denounced the raid, along with Illinois State's attorney, McClay Hoyne. Parker said the charges were trumped-up nonsense from hotel and restaurant owners. He called for the Chicago Federation of Labor to launch its own investigation. On June 29th, State's attorney Hoyne had told the Chicago Tribune that he didn't think Parker was aware of the devious practice. But at some point, he and his office seemingly changed their minds. A few days later, Parker himself was indicted in the poisoning scandal. Parker and Wood were two of the handful of individuals charged with a crime in the wake of the raid. Of the hundred or so people arrested, only ten men were ultimately slapped with charges around usage of the waiter's spite drug in a conspiracy to do bodily harm to injure the public health, as the Chicago Tribune put it. A grand jury handed down a blanket indictment for the ten on July 10, 1918, and those indictments were then handed over to Judge George Kirsten. Now, this group of ten proved to be an interesting assortment of figures. Wood had reportedly worked as a waiter in the Celtic room of the Sherman House Hotel, one of Chicago's leading establishments. He also apparently had a reputation as a man who knew how to get his hands on drugs. John Million was another man charged in the plot. He worked as a bartender at the union headquarters. Investigators said they uncovered a letter from Wood to Million concerning the poison. Let's have Kevin read that letter, which was dated April 24, 1918. This was also published in the Chicago Tribune. Friend Johnny, am enclosing two dozen packages of the Mickey Finn powder, making four dozen in all delivered since last settlement. Also, please find enclosed a couple of hundred circulars containing a special offer I am making in order to secure new business. These circulars are not for use in Chicago. Whenever you have a man that is leaving Chicago, talk Mickey Finn to him and give him a few of these circulars to be distributed among his friends at the pint he is making. Use your judgment as to how many you will give, as most of the circulars will be thrown away. Lincoln Powers was another one of the men facing charges. Like Million, he worked as a bartender at the union headquarters. He may have had a bit of a criminal record. On April 13, 1901, the Buffalo Morning Express reported that a 36-year-old waiter named Lincoln A. Powers had been arrested for assault. John Hoffman, Fred Smith, and Henry Jocko Graves were three waiters who were also charged in the conspiracy. Everyone else rounding out the group of ten was a union official. As of 1918, the local waiters' unions boasted 1,100 servers and 2,000 cooks as members. This was an active union that led strikes and demonstrations to advocate for higher pay and better conditions for its workers. Chester H. Buckley is listed as one of the officials. He's the person I could find the least amount of information on in the papers. George McLean was identified as the business agent of a bartender's union. He was mistakenly referred to as Fred McLean in a few articles. Herbert Gould was the business agent of the Cook's Union. He had a bit of a record. 
he was accused of throwing a bottle through the glass door of the Brevoort residence. He was accused of throwing a bottle through the glass door of the Brevoort restaurant in January 1918 and arrested. He'd been tossed in jail for disorderly conduct in May of that same year after a strike at a club. His name was misprinted as John Gold. And of course, Benjamin F. Parker was the president of the Chicago Waiters Union. He was mistakenly called Don Parker at first. Back in 1910, Parker had been listed as the business agent of the union in an interview with the Chicago Tribune about class divisions between quote-unquote beer slingers at amusement parks and concert halls and fancier wait staff at establishments like quote Rector's, the Blackstone, Congress, LaSalle, and the other leading hotels. All of the accused men were hit with a $5,000 bond. Of course, newspapers around the country ran with the story. Much of the national coverage seemed to imply that the issue was endemic. Here's how the Oneonta Star reported on it to give you a sense. Chicago waiters to the number of 100 have been arrested on a charge of putting a powder in the food of patrons who do not tip. The article then goes on to defend non-tippers, noting that eating out is expensive. Newspapers claimed that numerous prominent Chicagoans had been drugged, although they declined to name any of those famous individuals. Generally, the focus was on the bad tippers, not the background of the labor dispute underpinning the whole incident. Newspapers seemed more interested in bemusing or alarming readers about out-of-control waiters in incomplete, attention-grabbing blurbs than actually covering the story in depth. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. Given the intense publicity and shocking nature of the crime, you'd think we'd have a pretty good idea of exactly what happened next. But the truth is, there's actually very little information out there beyond the initial spate of media reports. And we tried to find the case files. We talked to a librarian at the Illinois Supreme Court system. She was super helpful and tried her best to find materials for us, but there was nothing she could find. She directed us to contact the Cook County Court System's Archives Department. The employees there informed us that felony records from 1900 to 1921 had either been recycled or incinerated long before the archives came around. So our opportunity to learn more about the evidence against the accused was literally burned up. Back in 1918, the case didn't seem to fare much better. In his book, Unknown Chicago, John Arch Smith wrote that the charges against the ten indicted conspirators seemed to have been dropped. There was no evidence of a trial in media reports. Plus, the men who had been charged appear in the newspapers here and there over the years. Scrutinizing the contemporary media reports, you do start to notice cracks in the case against the unionists and waiters. Remember when we told you about how the state's attorney's office was responsible for this case? Well, the truth is a bit more complicated. See, there was an investigation behind the investigation. We previously mentioned that Wood, the man accused of acting as the dispenser of the Mickey Finn powders, worked as a waiter at the Sherman House Hotel. To preface this little twist, the Sherman House Hotel was one of the great hotels of Chicago, having operated from 1837 
1973. Today, the James R. Thompson Center stands where the hotel once was. Anyways, the management there had become suspicious. The story was apparently that a number of its patrons were falling ill. So the Sherman hired a private concern to investigate its own staff. Detectives from the private eye firm Shippy, Hunt, and Dorman tackled the case. Shippy, Hunt, and Dorman was a detective agency with an intriguing past. It was founded in 1912. George M. Shippy had been Chicago's first ever native-born police chief, according to the Ashton Gazette. He'd broken a big car barn bandit ring and climbed his way up the force by investigating labor strikes. In 1908, an anarchist named Lazarus Averbuck attacked Shippy, his son, and his driver as they left their house. He stabbed Shippy and shot his son Harry and the driver. Shippy proceeded to shoot and kill the anarchist, and everybody else survived. However, shaken by the assassination attempt, he resigned and founded the detective agency in 1912, before quitting again after having a mental breakdown. Meanwhile, Nicholas Hunt and Charles C. Dorman were two former police inspectors who'd been ousted by a merit board investigation. A 1914 newspaper ad boasted that the agency specialized in work for railroads, corporations, and mercantile houses. In the case of the Sherman Affair, Shippy, Hunt, and Dorman had their operatives pose as waiters. They claimed to find that waiters had been drugging bad tippers of the hotel, and that the whole thing traced back to the local union. Their undercover agents even said they had been able to successfully purchase Mickey Finn powder from Wood and his wife. That sort of sounds like a state's attorney's office undertaking a massive raid and indictments at the behest of a powerful local hotel and a well-connected contingent of private detectives. Without seeing the case files for ourselves, we won't go so far as to accuse Shippy, Hunt, and Dorman of any sort of impropriety. But the solid evidence that the firm allegedly gathered starts to look a bit odd, given the fact that a trial never even happened. Then again, as a person who has belonged to a union, I tend to be biased toward labor in such disputes. But there is precedent for the legal system and management conspiring to orchestrate dirty tricks against unionists. Just look at the case of Bill Haywood. He was one of the founders of the Industrial Workers of the World. After the former governor of Idaho was killed in a car bomb, Haywood was accused of the murder on thin evidence and dragged in for a trial in 1907. His accuser was the alleged bomber himself, a former IWW member named Harry Orchard. Fortunately for Haywood, his attorney was Chicago's own Clarence Darrow. The government's case fell apart when Orchard admitted to being an informant for the Mine Owners Association and a Pinkerton stool pigeon to boot, thereby admitting that he was essentially paid to work against the Wobblies, as the members of Haywood's organization were known. Haywood was acquitted. Whether you agree with that verdict or not, it is clear that Harry Orchard was at best a very flawed witness 
and his word would not have been enough to convict anyone of any crime in any court. And it's also important to talk about the specific historical context of this Chicago investigation. The city's waiter wars were in full swing in 1918. As we mentioned, Gould had been locked up over a demonstration for striking workers outside the South Shore Country Club in May of 1918. At that point, the strike was contained to that one exclusive club. That same month, National Confectioners Association members were disappointed to find no servers available to wait on them at the same country club. The Chicago Tribune reported that a group of scabs, I mean women affiliated with the Red Cross Auxiliary, for some reason took it upon themselves to wait on the so-called candy men. The same article revealed that the country club waiters' strike happened in conjunction with similar strikes from barbers, bakers, brass and iron workers, and electrical workers. The country club strike came to a close before May's end, but it wasn't the end of disputes between waitstaff and management in the city. The previous month, in April, threats of a general strike of waiters and cooks at the large Chicago hotels began to spread in the newspapers. Waiters, cooks, bartenders, chambermaids, and laundry workers were looking for better pay and benefits than management was willing to shell out. And the battles would continue even after the grand jury investigation. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On July 28, 1918, the Chicago Tribune reported that Parker, Gould, and another man named Fred Peabody once again landed in legal trouble. A group of waiters had allegedly rioted in front of Vogelsang's restaurant, and the union leadership was accused of causing the disturbance. John Z. Vogelsang, the owner and president of the Restaurant Keepers Association, said that the unionists had retaliated against him after he refused to get involved in a labor dispute. He said they whipped up the crowd by alleging that the Austrian eagles decorating his restaurant were unpatriotic. The Batesville, Oklahoma Morning Examiner reported that hundreds of striking waiters and cooks 
streamed from the Sherman and his competitor, the LaSalle, on December 28, 1918. Union officials told the Chicago Tribune that the strike was in part over the fact that a chef had tried to force cooks to remove the union buttons adorning their caps. The waiter wars didn't end in 1918 either. In December 1922, the Chicago Tribune reported that a gunman raided a local club room, wounding the unnamed former chief of the waiters union and local policemen. The Louisiana Monroe News Star reported that a gunman named Emile Frank confessed to the shooting which resulted in the death of former Waiters Local Union Number no. 7 President Frank Reagan. The whole thing apparently happened over union infighting. All of that conflict certainly gives the impression that the local union was not on friendly terms with local hotel and restaurant operators. So, the idea that the union could have wanted to embarrass his enemies by sickening guests holds up as does the possibility that the business owners may have had an incentive to level false accusations against the union leaders. So what did happen to Joseph Mimoser, the diner we told you about at the top of the episode? Was the police operator and father of three poisoned? Was his death just a tragic outcome of a sudden unexplained health crisis? Was he really a bad tipper? Was he just some guy who died and who got dragged into this whole disaster to make a political point and amp up the stakes for the grand jury? We can say with certainty that we will never know for sure. But what about the wider story? Was this a case of an army of malevolent waitstaff out for revenge? Did a labor war cross the line and incur civilian casualties? Or, alternatively, promote the persecution of innocent men? Or was something else going on? It frankly seems unlikely that there was a mass effort to poison, sicken, and kill bad tippers just for the sake of punishing stingy patrons, given that the massive arrests seemed to lead to only 10 or so indictments. But then again, Cook County set the case on fire decades ago, so we could not assess it. All we have are these intriguing media reports. But maybe we can find a few clues in the fates of the indicted men. Well, by the fall of 1918, Benjamin Parker was apparently out of jail and talking to the newspapers. A UPI bulletin that ran on November 13, 1918, highlighted Parker's request for the War Labor Board to advance wages to a more livable scale for workers. He spoke to the Herald and Review of Decatur, Illinois, for the paper's December 31, 1918 issue, saying that his members were possibly looking at a large-scale walkout of the three biggest hotels in Chicago. The labor standoff was still raging at that point, pitting hotels and restaurants against their staff. Apparently, things got so wild that the hotels insinuated they would hire local women to act as scabs while the union threatened to invoke a law prohibiting women from serving alcohol. In 1920, Parker spoke to Montana's Great Falls Tribune about a May Day strike, noting that his members wanted a minimum wage of $30 a week for cooks and $18 a week for waiters. His documented activity throws poisoned water on the idea that the case went far beyond the grand jury. It seems unlikely that he could have done all of that from jail, or even while undergoing a lengthy trial. 
Parker's obituary ran in the Chicago Tribune's death notices in 1943. At the time of his death, he was still the president of the Chicago Waiters Alliance, Local 25. It's hard to read through Parker's record and see much other than a dedicated unionist who spent his entire career forcefully advocating for the servers he represented. In December 1918, Herbert Gould and other labor organizers alleged they'd been jumped and beaten by what the Chicago Tribune described as hired sluggers. Gould suspected that the beating was doled out to him and his colleagues over the general strike. Again, that gives some credence to the idea that the Union's enemies were not above dirty tricks. He remained active in the Union and was listed as planning big dances for the Waiters Association in 1920. In 1939, George McLean tried to stand up to the gangsters attempting to take over the bartenders' union he worked for, even going so far as to testify against them before a grand jury. He and his brother were involved in a power struggle to keep the union out of the hands of Frank Nitty's gang. Nitty was a close associate of Al Capone. Nitty and other criminals received indictments. Then, likely after receiving threats from the mob, McLean clammed up, and the case fell apart. He retreated to a life in obscurity, supporting himself by tending bar at a liquor store on Chicago's north side, according to a piece from Chicago Tribune veteran journalist James Doherty. So that seems to speak well of McLean, who tried to do the right thing until he was frightened off. As we wrapped up the murder sheet's research on the case, I felt pretty strongly that the charges against the union officials and the waiters were likely unfair, that management from the Sherman had employed private detectives to smear their enemies and then manipulated the legal system into tying up the union. Then, I looked over an errant newspaper clipping that I'd left open in one of my millions of tabs, and it made me rethink just about everything about the Chicago poisonings of 1918. You see... Nearly identical allegations surfaced on the East Coast over 10 years later. The trouble started in 1929 when Judge Francis I. Stanger Jr. of the Garden State's Cumberland County went out to eat in Atlantic City with two friends. The trio became violently ill after the meal. The local prosecutor, Louis A. Repetto, was made aware of that incident. Then, newspaper reports came out announcing that a suspect, who was arrested on April 27, 1929, had been cornered on suspicion of poisoning. A waiter in an Atlantic City establishment told Repetto's office that the suspect had given him shoe-fly poison for the soup. The motive was to embarrass local hotels and cafes in the midst of a labor dispute. That particular waiter freaked out and reported the incident to the prosecutor. Repetto felt the incident must be connected to Judge Stanger's sudden sickness. The suspect was named Nicholas Christie. He was the business agent of the local waiters' union. He was apparently looking to embarrass local businesses during a labor dispute. Sound a bit familiar? He pled not guilty and was released on a $10,000 bail. Two other union leaders named Nicholas Clavani 
and James DeMoss were indicted at the same time on assault and battery charges, which were linked to the labor dispute, but had nothing to do with the alleged poisoning. We were able to find no evidence of a trial in that Mickey Finn case. So were officials at waiters' unions really working to sabotage the big hotels and restaurants back in the earlier part of the 20th century, even at the cost of endangering the lives of innocent civilians? Or were these labor leaders victims of powerful hospitality interests who'd co-opted the justice system amidst rumblings around a strike? Was the whole thing a dirty trick to trip up the union as it strived to better working conditions for Chicago waiters and cooks? And did these campaigns spread out beyond Chicago to New Jersey? Is there some boring middle ground where the union adopted some questionable tactics that were then greatly exaggerated by the powers that be? It's hard to say. This is one of those stories where the facts have vanished over time, like a powder vigorously stirred into a drink sending the tiny crystals swirling and swirling until they dissolve into the whirlpool. The murder sheet relied on newspapers.com and reporting from a number of newspapers in our episode today. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening.